Welcome to Quest, where we believe a great faith, great church experience, and great life is grounded in authentic relationship with God and living life with friends. Join us today in changing our world one friendship at a time. If you would like more information about connecting at Quest, stay tuned after the message. Hey, uh, so we are studying the book of Romans. Paul was writing Romans because he wanted us to understand the gospel and to experience the gospel. How do we live it? How do we allow the gospel to make massive changes in our lives, in our behaviors, in our character, our feelings, and our thoughts? That's what Paul's driving at. Can I just say I really appreciate you as a, as a church because of your tenacity and your desire to be serious about growth in your faith. This is not an easy book. This is not consumer Christianity where the emphasis is on felt needs and entertainment. Now, there's nothing wrong with addressing felt needs. We do that. Uh, we want to be interesting, if not entertaining, although I have a hard time telling a good joke, so you'll laugh at me telling bad jokes, and I appreciate that. But not, we don't want to do that at the expense of depth in the truth of God and dealing with the real, down-to-earth, gritty realities of life. For four chapters, Paul teaches us, has been teaching us about sin and the essentials of justification by faith. And now today we're going to look at how Paul begins to show us how these truths actually can transform our lives. Romans 5 begins saying this, it says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this peace he's talking about is not the same as the, what he talks about in Philippians, where God's peace carries us through troubled times and pressures, although what we're talking about today can help us with that. This peace is not referring to a subjective, subjective feeling that can flood our hearts with a sense of serenity. Peace with God means the state of hostility between God and us is now over. It's done. It is an objective reality that Christ's death has created for us. And this peace is secure whether you feel it or not. See, I hear people often say the purpose of religion is to help you feel peace. So they say things like, well, I'm glad Christianity gives you peace, but I get those same feelings through meditation or long walks or drinking bourbon or whatever. Yet this peace that we're talking about today is much more than feelings that fluctuate. Because some people will say, I just don't feel like God loves me. I don't feel like God is close to me and, and, and I feel like I've been doing something wrong and he's, and he's distant from me. But, but this peace Paul is talking about is based on a truth that is so much stronger than our subjective feelings. See, there was a war going on, Paul has said to us before this, between us and God. Romans 1, he talks about it. He says, our rebellion against God, and he talks about God's wrath toward us because of that rebellion. Now, God's anger is not like anger, our anger. It's not vengeful, vengeful. it's not vindictive, yet there was a real debt that our rebellion against God comes with that cannot just be pushed away. We needed someone to pay the price so that of our debt in order for justice to be done, in order for us to be right with God and at peace with God for that hostility to be gone. And Jesus did just that. Paul goes on, he says, through whom we have gained access by faith into the grace in which we now stand. Now, so this is an interesting word, this gained access word. It means to bring near, to introduce. So think about it. In order to have a relationship with someone more powerful, you need to be introduced to them and be taken into their presence or their inner circle in a sense. See, Paul is saying we have been given access 
into this grace and given a favorable position with God. Meaning, because of Jesus and trusting in what he did for us, we are ushered into the royal throne room and we stand there before God and we remain there before God. This standing as justified has removed the wrath and it has given us a relationship with God. So we can go to him with anything and he will hear us. In Ephesians, Paul describes this relationship as we are adopted sons and daughters, full heirs of all that God is and has. We don't have to be terrified. So ask yourself, how do you feel when you go to God? Do you feel like he generally disapproves of you? Do you think he's not really listening or that concerned with what's going on? Or... Do you come with an awareness that he is an attentive father who loves you fully and completely? David had this kind of standing, this kind of confidence in God's grace. David put it this way. He said, where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. And if I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. Think about that. To make My bed in hell, you are there. May we all be able to say that and know that and stand in that kind of confidence that God is with us even in the worst of times, even when the worst of times are our own making. See, that's what knowing the gospel means. That's what Paul wants us to have down so securely in our hearts and our minds so that the gospel begins to transform the way we live and think and feel and see the world. This kind of confidence in Jesus' perfect justification leads us to see an area where we sin or lack self-control or we have a character issue like being too angry or impatient, and yet even in the midst of that, we don't doubt God's love. You feel close to God, even in the midst of him convicting you of those things that he wants to see change because you know his loving grace for you. So when your conscience accuses you and says, how could God love you after what you've done? You don't try to defend yourself by making excuses or distancing yourself from God. You simply are humbly grateful for how Jesus has made you acceptable before God. The second half of chapter 5 continues with the two Adams, Adam from the Garden of Eden and the second Adam from heaven and the cross, Jesus. These verses give actually Paul's summary conclusion to the doctrine of justification. Let's read a little bit of it. It says, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned, And death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is the pattern of the one to come. So chapter 4, Paul uses Abraham to show us justification by faith. In chapter 5, Paul goes back further to Adam to set up justification by faith and the gospel. Paul is showing us that all of history can be told as the story of these two Adams. Now, we kind of get that for all of you Star Wars fans, right? Some of you who are Star Wars fans, you realize that what's, uh, that's often been called as the tale of the two Skywalkers, right? The first Skywalker, Anakin, gave into temptation, embraced the dark side, which brought death and destruction for the entire galaxy. The second Skywalker, Luke, faced the same temptation, but he was faithful 
and obedient to the Jedi way, reversing the Skywalker's disobedience and curse. And it even allowed redemption in the story of the first Skywalker, didn't it? The writer George Lucas said the central theme of episodes 4 through 6 was the redemption of Anakin, the first Skywalker, by Luke, the second Skywalker. Does this sound familiar? It's similar to the entire storyline of the Bible. When the redemption of the first Adam is accomplished by the second Adam, Jesus. So notice how this verse ends. It says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and this way death came to all people because all sinned. So from one sin, every disease, every divorce, every natural disaster, every rape, every war, every sin goes back to this choice. I know some of us struggle with that saying, but why am I held responsible for something I had no part? Well, let's look at it a little closer. I think God knew that Adam, what Adam would choose, and I think he knows what we all would choose had we been given the same choices, right? You may say, no, I, I wouldn't have done that. But seriously, God knows you can't even resist the Snickers bars that your wife you know, hid in the top cabinet from you. If we can't resist that, how can we resist this idea of having God-like power and knowledge? Or you may say, why am I held accountable for something I didn't choose? Let's just be honest. Have you ever thought you knew better than God and what the best plan for your life was? Or have you ever known the right thing to do and did something different? I mean, let's face it. We all have sinned, and we all know it. As a result, death spread to all people, physical and spiritual death. Verse 14 tells us Adam is the pattern of the one to come, so Paul is actually transitioning to now talk about the second Adam, Jesus. He goes on in verse 15, he says, But the gift is not like the trespass, for if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and this gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? So Paul takes great effort to show that the power and scope of Jesus' work is far greater than Adam's. Twice Paul says, how much more? Showing us Jesus' work completely covers and undoes all the multiplied effects of Adam's errors and sins. Adam and Jesus are alike in that their actions and implications for mankind are similar, but they're very different. The first Adam disobeyed selfishly and ate from the one forbidden tree and brought a curse on the earth. The second Adam sacrificially obeyed God and went to a tree to take that curse into himself. The first Adam brought death upon the entire human race, and the second Adam restored life to all who would receive it. We were condemned through the actions of one, yet are saved through the actions of one who did what none of us could have done. Verse 18, Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. Life for everyone. So here's a question we often get. Does that mean everyone will be saved? No. 
That actually contradicts too many other things that both Paul and Jesus say, even in Romans. I mean, just the previous verse to this in verse 17, it says, For if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? It's an invitation for all. But sadly, not everyone will receive it or accept it. There's an RSVP to God that needs to happen in our hearts and our lives. See, Paul is saying there are two family lines, and we all get to choose between which one we serve. We want to be on Team Adam or we want to be on Team Jesus. You are either one or the other. The word one is actually interesting. It's used 12 times in these verses that we're reading, and one meaning of, one meaning means unity and all that kind of stuff. So we're either in unity with Adam in this sinful rebellion against God, or, and we reap the condemnation, or we are unified with Jesus in his submission to the Father. So again, which team are you on? For just as through the disobedience, it goes on to verse 19, of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. So what it's saying is God has provided everything the entire world needs for salvation. The law was brought, it says in verse 20, in so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So at the cross, we see the worst sin can do upon humanity, where humanity, which includes us, crucified Jesus. But at the cross, we also see that even though sin at its, at, sin at its worst cannot stop God's plan for salvation. At the cross... Grace overwhelms sin and triumphs over death, and it always does. The first Adam is not the last word over humanity. The second Adam, who brought hope, is the last word over humanity. So at the end of chapter 5, Paul lays out a summary of justification by faith, where we're going to land today and put more of our time, where he actually talks about how two truths must be held together in tension. These two truths are so important that Tertullian, an early church father, said, if we hold only one of these truths, it will surely lead us to heresy. He said it this way, just as Jesus was crucified between two thieves, so the gospel is even crucified between two opposite heresies. What are these two truths? They're simply this, God is holy and just, so our sins require that we be punished. See, the gospel shows us, and Paul has presented to us in Romans, that you and I are more sinful than we ever have dared to believe. And if we forget this truth, it leads to permissiveness, or what we might call liberalism or relativism. And the second truth is this. God is loving and gracious, so in Christ our sins are dealt with. The gospel also tells us that you and I are more accepted in Christ than we could have ever dared hope. If we forget this, it leads to legalism. And legalism says we have to be good enough in order to be saved. We have to clean up our act in order to be saved. See, liberalism, relativism says because we're saved, we don't have to be good. We need the gospel to keep these two truths together. And avoid falling into heresy. To help clarify, 
Let's just take a little more look at this and see which side each of us may have a tendency to fall on on this spectrum. The center column represents the gospel, truth. Legalism happens when we are so concerned that grace is going to get too loose or it will be abused. So we come up with all sorts of rules to help people stay far away from sin. And the Christian faith becomes more focused on avoiding evil and ridding ourselves of evil and fearing we will get caught in evil than it does about being like Jesus. What were some of the rules you may have lived with that may have represented legalism? Growing up in Wendy's church, there were no guitars or drums allowed in worship music. You couldn't use microphones. Somehow those things were secular, and which led to no listening to secular music unless it was a certain classical music. How many of you have had that rule in your past? Songs needed to be sung about Jesus, but not the kind of country songs that sing about Jesus and whiskey. So, speaking of alcohol... Even though Jesus turned water into wine, this comes up, this, this idea comes up with no drinking is allowed. Now, personally, I've made the choice not to drink. But the Bible's only prohibition about alcohol is not getting drunk and being thoughtful of your brother or sister who may be vulnerable. In other words, don't drink if it's going to cost somebody else's sobriety and damage them. Another rule that was often in the church, um, legalism, is women can't wear pants, only dresses, especially in churches, and dresses need to be at least cover their knees. Now, I, I realize in our culture today, the modesty, it leaves something, you know, that doesn't, there's not a lot of modesty in our culture today. It would be nice to be maybe just a little bit more, but is there something really dangerous about knees? You know, other ones were no dancing or no playing cards, at least until you retired and went to Lincoln, Texas in the winter, and that's what everybody did. Anything else you did that you saw as legalistic rules in your, in your past? Probably the most devastating legalism to the gospel is the, is the idea of don't ever hang out with sinners. Really? I can't even hang out with myself? Where does that leave me? Certainly we need wisdom because who you surround yourself most with is who you'll become like, right? So cultivate deep Christian community in your life. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't or can't hang out with friends whose sin might be more obvious than ours who don't believe like we do. Jesus hung out with sinners. Be like Jesus. See, the concern with this is we focus more on what we do or don't do, which leads us to feeling that we need to earn our salvation. We need to create our own identity as being good enough people by how well we perform rather than trusting in the perfect work of Jesus. On the other side, though, we have liberalism or relativism. Now, in using this term liberalism, we're not speaking politically. We're talking theologically, okay? From this perspective... God is loving, kind, merciful, always patient, which is true. However, when we fall for the liberal view, we take love and grace to a place where we can't tell someone that's not okay. That behavior does not reflect Jesus. And, so, and as we often say, to not judge between right and wrong is actually not loving. 
I mean, who leaves someone they love to a behavior that is destructive without inviting them, urging them, appealing them to stop hurting themselves and others by doing wrong? If you don't have that conversation, you don't really love that person. Liberalism objects us to punishment and negative consequences of sin as well. An example of liberalism would be someone like a friend of mine in the past who said he's a Christian, but he was having an affair, and he's kind of said, even though it's wrong, it's okay because Jesus will forgive me. It's like he's saying, Jesus is my Savior. He forgives my sin, but he's not my Lord. I do what I want. I don't need to follow any laws. Laws are under the Old Testament, we often hear people say. I'm under the grace of Jesus. That kind of thinking is heresy. It's an abuse of grace that both Paul and Jesus repeatedly reject. We need the knowledge of both of these truths. We need to know that our sin has caused a great chasm between us and God. And we need to know how thoroughly and perfectly Jesus has covered our sin. See, what liberalism or relativism does is it denies or minimizes the depth of that chasm of our sin has created and how much our sin has cost us and cost others and cost God. It minimizes what Jesus did on the cross. In the liberal view, Jesus really didn't need to sacrifice all that he did because we're not really that bad. Tim Keller does such a great job of summarizing this legalism, gospel, and liberalism ideas. Maybe some of these distinctions will be helpful to you. We've already gone one, God is holy, is a, is a legalistic view. God is holy and love is gospel. And God is love is more a liberal view. God is holy and just. And as a just God, he is also the epitome of love. Next one. Uh, legalism view says earn your own righteousness. The gospel says receive God's perfect righteousness. The liberal view says you don't need perfect righteousness because people are basically okay. They just need a little more education. We hear that, right? Another one, matter is bad and we are fallen. Be suspicious of or reject physical pleasure, asceticism. But the gospel is matter is good and yet we are fallen. Physical enjoyment is good, but live wisely. The liberal view is matter is good, and we aren't fallen. So satisfy your physical appetites. Whatever you want is good. Whatever you desire is good. The legalist rejects and forgoes pleasure that God created. The liberal person believes that pleasures and feelings trump all else. So fulfilling those desires is the only right thing to do. But God wants to shape our desires and our identity, and he wants to direct our desires into what is truly most healthy, even if it doesn't feel like we feel right now. See, another one, sin only affects individuals, so just do evangelism. Gospel view is sin affects both individuals and social systems, so do both evangelism and social action. Liberalism is naive about the depth of sin, so just do social action. Just to be clear, justice or social justice is a key aspect of who God is. Psalm 11.7 says, For the Lord is righteous and He loves justice. And don't get triggered by these words, social justice. The way our culture defines and lives it 
often skews or even completely corrupts the biblical justice by making it a political weapon. We need to think about this topic as God does, not our culture. That's a whole other message, and and it's likely going to be an evening discussion we'll have coming up in the early fall that we'll invite you to. Yet for today's message, we know the prophets speak about God's love not only to individual people, but to people groups. There's an American philosopher, Dr. Cornell West, says it this way. He says, justice is what love looks like in public. The prophet Isaiah saw a miscarriage of justice in the lives of the people of God and couldn't remain silent. He wrote, Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees and the writers who keep writing oppression to turn aside the needy from justice to rob the poor of my people of their right that the widows may be their spoil and that they may make the fatherless their prey. Justice is about having right relationships with one another. To do justice means that every person is taken seriously as a human being in the image of God. Isaiah is crying out against leaders and institutions that were unjust in their laws and they were oppressing people. This is not a new issue. This is an issue of every single generation. The gospel and social action need to be held together. In fact, for Paul, the gospel leads the way to social justice. Why? Because in Romans 1, he says, the gospel is the power to save. An example, so many people thoroughly misunderstand Paul when he talks about the place of women or slavery. What they miss is that Paul's first goal in the way he lives life is to embed the gospel in people's lives. Let the gospel lead the way. Because the gospel in people's hearts, like yeast, will spread and remove injustice and slavery and oppression and greed and bigotry. Therefore, Paul's commands about women and for slaves to stay as slaves are not a reflection that Paul is okay with those inequities, but rather his insistence that Christians keep the gospel at the forefront, leading the way, and don't undermine the spread of the gospel by making the primary aim of our lives social justice outcomes. Get people to know and receive this gospel and then all these other things will begin to be corrected. Because when we see that we are all the same in our sin and all the same in our need of Jesus' love and all created equal, things begin to change. See, that's why you hear Paul say women shouldn't speak, but then what does he do? He actually elevates Priscilla, a woman, as a teacher and speaker and as a trainer of preachers. As well as what you'll see a little bit later in Romans, you'll see that he actually appointed a woman as an apostle. Is there a mismatch between what he says and what he does? No. This is a reflection that he believes the gospel getting into lives before we try to change these cultural institutions will actually be the force that changes these cultural institutions. So he leads with the gospel. When the gospel is implanted, he starts advocating for these things to change. That's why Paul says, if you are a slave when you are found in Christ, stay a slave. But then Paul insists in his teaching that slaves and masters are equal. That Christian masters must treat their slaves as brothers. And then you see Paul advocating with a slave owner to free his slave Onesimus. 
The gospel leads the way and the gospel begins to make the difference in social inequities as it captures people's hearts. But the gospel has to be first. But it can't ignore the other either. See, the gospel has been and is the power to save and redeem us individually and as a society. So how can the gospel lead the way and bring about true reconciliation in our world today? That's the fundamental question. How can the gospel lead the way and temper greed and reduce poverty? We're all called to practice justice. Throughout the Bible, God pays particular attention to the vulnerable. I mean, in Jesus' first sermon, he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, we may have spiritualized this passage in a way that misses some of its fullness at times of what Jesus is meaning. The poor are those who are spiritually poor and those who are materially in poverty. The captives are not just those who are in personal bondage to sin or demonic powers, although it is that, but it's also those who are captive to ideologies that are unjust, cruel, and evil. Those who are oppressed is not just a spiritual oppression, but a societal and political oppression. See, we can't understand Jesus unless we understand how he talks about justice. So here's another one in this comparison of legal gospel and liberalism. People can't change. Change is easy. That could be confusing. This means that we can't save ourselves. People who are legalistic and Christian believe that. But then they kind of get to this oversimplistic place of saying, once you are saved, everything should be easy and better, and all these problems should go away. These temptations you face should be gone. They're just like that. It should be easy. Gospel is that people can change, but quick fixes are often not the norm. So pray for miracles, see miracles, and persevere because God's ultimate promise is there to carry you through and change you. The liberal view is people don't need to change, just accept them for who they are. Here's another one. Go into guilt, is legalism, carry the heaviness, work it off, Try to be good enough. Clean up your act. Get your act together. Gospel is go through guilt. Embrace it. But don't get stuck. Rest in Christ's loving forgiveness even as you are facing the guilt of what you've done. Liberalism is a world trying to go away from guilt. Just get rid of guilt. Eliminate guilt. Convince yourself you're okay and call anyone who says you aren't judgmental or intolerant. I remember reading the story of a sex addict who was a follower of Jesus a few years back. He just couldn't stop himself. He felt bad of how he used others, how he disappointed God, and, and how he hated himself for being so bad. Counseling and having accountability partners weren't, weren't cutting it for this guy. Then one day a spiritual mentor sat down with him and said, John, God loves you. He has thoroughly forgiven you. He wants you to know his grace to change. But you always get angry at yourself. And you always keep God at a distance when you do that. So he said to John, the next time you were in the middle of acting out in your sin, I want you to, in that moment, remember and imagine God being right there with you, loving you even in that moment of sin 
that you and he both hate. A day later, when John was acting out in that sin again, he did just that. And he experienced God loving him, even in the moment of that sin. And something flipped, something changed, a light went on for him. To experience God with him, even in the midst of sin, it's like he experienced what David said, if I make my bed in hell, you are there. Not that God condones the behavior, but John was no longer alone. And he found the freedom he needed, experiencing God loving him, even when he was sinning. He went on to live a healthy, God-honoring life, even in his sex life. Here's another one. Repent of sins. Repent of sins and self-righteousness is the gospel. And liberalism is repent of neither. See, we see legalism in Christians who prudishly and harshly condemn certain language. But we also see liberalism as some go to the opposite extremes of using language in a coarse and vulgar way, all in the name of gospel freedom. However, Jesus and Paul regularly tell us, let your words build others up. Let your words bring sweetness and respect and peace and honor and goodness to others. And Paul specifically says, don't talk coarsely. If it doesn't represent the gospel or Jesus well, and it isn't healthy for you either. It's not freedom. It's bondage is what Paul says. See, we see liberalism elevating human choice and desires over sexual moral ethics. We talked about that. We did our part one of a biblical sexual ethic a few weeks ago on a discussion, and there was a lot of people who wanted to come who couldn't make that, so we're going to be coming out in the next week or so with another date. We're going to do part one again of a biblical sexual ethic. So if you missed that one, you can come and be there with us. And if you came and you feel like you want to bring your teenagers, because we limited it to adults, Bring them to the part one on the biblical sexual ethic with you if you want to do that. We're then going to, after that, do a part two where we go on a broader discussion of how do we talk about these things with our kids and how do we talk about it with our friends and our family members and our coworkers in a way that is healthy and good. Be looking for those dates. They'll be coming out in the events feed uh, very shortly as soon as we get them nailed down. Hopefully this week we'll get them nailed down. See... Liberalism diminishes God's commands, and it uses the concept of grace to elevate our right to choose as the preeminent value. The truth biblically is we do have a God-given right to choice. We can choose Jesus in life, or we can choose sin and death. It comes down to those two choices. So how do we walk this out? From this summary, what ways of the gospel do you appreciate more that speak to you more i don't know one of the ones that speaks to me most uh, that i think is the hardest for me is to go through guilt and face it while resting in the love of god in the midst of that isn't it so easy to flip-flop between those other two spectrums of either push god off or just ignore it try to get away from the guilt god wants us to do it while resting in his love so i want you to take the time this week to think about resting, about standing in the power of the gospel. So as we close together, let's all stand. And let's just read these first two verses from Romans. And worship team, come on back up. Sorry, I could have called, should have called you guys up really fast. So 
Anybody got a joke while they're coming up to delay here for just a moment or so? No. Um, let's read this together and then let's pray. Therefore, since, come on with me. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that each one of us would just, as we're standing now, that in our hearts and our minds and our spirits, we would just stand in this grace, that we would receive it in its abundance. Lord, that when we sin, we would no longer put distance between us or avoid the guilt, but we would stand with you in the power of your gracious love, even as we deal with it, as we move through it. Lord, would you bring the freedom of that power of the Holy Spirit in our lives to encounter your grace, to be your winsome people, that we will not fall prey to either one of these heresies, but we will be truly winsome, truly free, truly powerful as we stand in your presence and trust your love. In Jesus' name. We hope you encountered the love of Jesus in this message. If you'd like to be a part of the ministry God is doing through Quest, whether in person or online, go to questvineyard.org for more information. If you want to worship God by supporting Quest financially, go to questvineyard.org give. May God bless you this week as you partner with God to change the world one friendship at a time.